Wry Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Vertigo, starring James Stewart, Kim Novak, Barbara Belgettis, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's a new year, 2020. It's time for a new film review cask. And we got some new equipment and a new arsenal at our disposal, don't we, Matt? Boy, Jesse, you set this up beautifully. A new soundboard, new mics. <laughs> Sandy Claus was very good to us this year. <laughs> I think the quality is certainly elevated. And I can't wait to see from Rye Nation. Yeah. Hear from Rye Nation about the the sound now. Just sounding different. Yeah, I figured, yeah, in the new year, let's kick it up a notch and kind of expand our endeavors and think we really surprised ourselves with the amount of outreach and the amount of people that listened to the show in 2019. So yeah, here's to 2020. Here's to 2020. And you have a, a nice uh, special surprise for us here too. So to kind of kick off the second year, I wanted to do something that was also a little commemorative. And so we had some glasses that were engraved with rice smile. There's an initial in the back that's the J for you, obviously, and the M for me. And the date of the first time we went live, which was January 19th of 2019, which was Unbreakable, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Number one. And in honor of that, also, I'm wearing the shirt that you gave me for Christmas, which is... Limited edition. So cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm um, glad you like it. I love it. So we're off to a great start. Now all that has to happen is this bottle of Macallan 15 has to hold up and has per to price kill. point, it should, has right? Has to kill it, yeah. Yep. So let me pour you some. Yeah, we don't dabble too much into scotch, scotch. but this is a, a very particular uh, type of Macallan. This is the 15-year, uh, you know, the scotch. It all kind of really depends on, you know, what the what the casks are, are matured in. And these, they use uh, sherry casks for the this particular brand of scotch. Scotch seemed to fit Hitchcock more than bourbon, yeah? Definitely, yeah. So that was part of that. Here's to you. Cheers. Here's to you, Ryan Nation. And to 2020. To 2020. Mm-hmm. That's really good. So smooth. Very smooth. And you can always tell the difference, I think, in the color of the scotch, too. It's um, almost borders on, like, a, a yellow gold color versus, like, the... Like Bourbon's the br- darker. The, the brown amber colors. Excellent. Well, That's it's terrific. It's actually really good. You said that was a Christmas present from your brother? Yes, to Mike. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's that's good stuff. Sure is. Excellent. So, uh, Matt, I'm very excited to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock. You know, we've talked about, you know, doing casks built around actors or directors or themes, and we've certainly done a bunch of themes in 2019. But to tackle kind of three seminal films in Hitchcock's filmography, this is going to be a lot of fun. You know, you and I both, you know, took classes uh, based around Alfred Hitchcock. And even in, in your uh, film class, I learned a lot about the man, uh, too, from from seeing these films for the first time. So what better way than to have a flight question built all around that and our top three favorite uh, scenes in Hitchcock's films? I'll let you go first with number three. So there should be a disclaimer here, and that's neither one of us is allowed to choose the shower scene from Psycho. Oh, is that fair? Because that's, that's just... It's been talked about at, for good reason, but let's let's kind of keep it fresh. I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Number three for me is in a movie that's coming later in the cast for us. It's from Rebecca, 
And it's the scene between Joan Fontaine, who's only given the name as the second Mrs. De Winter, mm. and Judith Alexander, who plays Miss Danvers. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to call the scene other than the reveal of their shared past. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with Joan Fontaine going through what's the linen drawer of the previous or first now deceased Rebecca, Miss De, Miss De Winter. Mm-hmm. And the warning issued by Judith Anderson to her over what exactly they shared in the past and what she has no intention of letting her share with anyone going forward. Now, the her originally is a lesbianic, if that's even a word, insinuation between her and Mrs. Between her and Rebecca. That's not so landmark now, but in 1939, and that is going to be Hitchcock's most critically acclaimed film Mm -hmm. per Academy Awards stuff. Per his career, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was walking a pretty fine line on razor thin acceptability in what mainstream moviegoers would allow. Especially with the production code too. Like exactly. What you can and cannot show. So the Hayes code isn't quite in full effect yet, but it's it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. And so with the way that that is subtly delivered by Judith um, Judith Anderson as Miss Danvers is brilliant because she is telling Joan Fontaine, the second Mrs. De Winter. Mm-hmm. We had a past you'll never live up to her. And if mm-hmm. I have my druthers, you won't live much longer anyway. Exactly. Okay, that's my number three. That's a good one. Thank she's you. so good in that role too. She's so steely and waspish. Right. <laughs> like she's she's really good at that. That's going to be a fun conversation to talk about of Rebecca Agreed. And, and watch that one. Yeah. Excellent. Number three for me is actually going to come from Rear Window. And there's a lot of great moments from the, you know, the opening kind of looking in all the rear windows of everyone's apartments to... um the kind of, you know, final confrontation. But my favorite moment in this film, my number three, is actually when when uh, Raymond Burr Tharwald finds out that uh, James Stewart and, and then, and then it, they're looking across the way when Grace Kelly's pointing to the ring on her finger and he looks and he, there's this moment and they try and back away into the shadows. It's, you're just setting up the inevitable confrontation. He calls him later and there's like this silence and the, the tension's palpable, but... For Hitchcock's always been called the master of suspense, and it's moments like this that you get a moniker like that, like just building the tension, you know, with little visual cues. Rear Window is a movie that is such an interesting psychological study from the viewer. Mm-hmm. It's easy to pass judgment on Jimmy Stewart in that film because he's just, well, he's a peeping Tom. Oh, yeah. Right? Boyer. So if he's a peeping Tom watching people vicariously because he's trapped with a broken leg in his chair, mm-hmm. then what does that make the viewer? Because you're watching the viewer watch. Double voyeurs. You're even worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't even have the reason to do it, which is to try to bring someone to justice. You're just bored, so you want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a little element of that in that movie, but that's not essentially what the story is, although it's beautifully done in the other windows. Mm-hmm. The side stories that are being carried on, Mrs. Torso and yeah, Mrs. Lonely Hearts and mm-hmm. all that. But it does make one give pause to the morality that we assign to characters in film because you are worse. And the scene you've you've laid out to me is also my favorite scene from that movie. Uh, the point on the on the finger is just iconic. Yeah, I got it. Look, I and it's it. all through bin- like binoculars too. Is how the reveal's given to us. I love it. That's my number three. Oh, I love it. Number two. Yep. Going way back in the time machine for this one, Jesse. Okay. All the way back to blackmail. Okay. Blackmail is an important movie for Hitchcock. I think that's 35, yeah, is, 36. Is this, is this still his silent days? 
Well, it's where it stops being his silent days. Okay. This is the first movie that actually has talky okay. um, action for Hitchcock. So this is his, his British days still. Right. Yep. So the character is, well, the actress is Annie Andra. I think blackmail's a little light on plot as far as the twists might go in a thriller genre realm that someone sort of carved their niche out in the, the movie-going world. But what's insinuated is Annie Andra is semi-raped or almost raped behind a curtain, and she murders the raper, mm-hmm. rapist. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, that's really well done because, again, it's hidden because you can't show that. Yeah. But what's even better is how she emerges. Very rigid, uh, statuesque, awkward standing, mm-hmm. um, almost Max Shrek-like yeah. in Nosferatu, but mm-hmm. not in that horrific way, but equally as horrific. Yes. Holding that nice that knife awkwardly with a little spatter of blood over her, and you realized mm-hmm. she's just done this dude in with like a mother of all steak knives. Yep. Um, that's number two for me, and mostly it's just because of Annie Andra's rigid performance. Yeah. Post murder. It is, isn't it behind like one of those like changing partitions? Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you can't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of it too. And I think that's a lot of the beauty of Hitchcock. Right? I think what that's where, see. It's what, where he excels like in, in his craft. Yeah. Is, yeah. Definitely what you don't see. Number two for me, we're going to go to the birds for this one. A lot of great sequences you could talk about in this film, whether it's, you know, Jessica Tandy and any of her weird conversations with her son and, and, and whatever. Yeah, the Oedipus movie that Hitchcock made, huh? Exactly. But to me, just kind of showing a man ahead of his time in terms of the visual editing, it's the attack on Bodega Bay, the, the gas station sequence in particular. You know, you get the, you know, the bird's eye view kind of take down, you know, the birds coming in. You know, and you get that kind of awkward, like that Tippy Hedron, like triple take of like the way it's cut. It's almost comical, but you're getting the reactions in a very unique way. And then her in the phone booth, man, the tension's just, it's at an 11 in the, in that sequence. Uh, I think it's done very well in, in, in using special effects. And that's 1962, well ahead of their time. You know, this is pre George Lucas, this is pre Stanley Kubrick. You know, Hitchcock to me always tests the capabilities of the medium. And he definitely does that in Vertigo today as well. No question. We could get into that movie. Um, that could be a whole podcast in and itself, but just on the motivations of the birds. Uh, so I don't want to take too much from that because this is Master of Suspense cask version round one. Mm-hmm. So I imagine at some point we probably will talk about the birds in some way. God, that would be a great episode. Wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's just so many questions that everybody has regarding why don't they at the end. And I'd love to break that down and mm-hmm. the theories around that. And sure. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, there's an honorable mention for me in that movie that man, up until I walked in your door, I was going to have it number three and I just bumped it for mostly the reason that someday I hope we do birds and we get to talk about it. But I, th- there's any number of scenes in that film that are fantastic. Definitely. Okay. Number one for me. Okay. Okay. So actually comes from today's film. Okay. And it has to do with Jimmy Stewart. I think in Jimmy Stewart's long and very welcoming to just about any script that came across his agent's hands desks, Mm -hmm. there's two very important moments in his filmography that stick out or really resonate with me. One of them is in It's a Wonderful Life. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the scene where he finally gives in 
to Mary Hatch and admits that I guess I'm stuck here in Bedford Falls and we're going to be together. Mm -hmm. And it's the way he handles her. This is the same scene in Vertigo. Oh, yeah. It's Kim Novak up the flight of steps as he is explaining to her, I've figured you all out. And I'm not going to get into it because we're going to get into this in the podcast. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, the boy next door that I think Jimmy Stewart pulled off so well. Oh, yeah. So angry Mm -hmm. and handsy. Yeah. Um, furious, almost evil mm-hmm. to a certain degree. And I just don't think you got that a lot from him. Oh, never. Yeah. This is so different than anything he ever did. This is very not Frank Capra. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. This is something else altogether or Philadelphia story or mm-hmm. any of those, those kind of even rear window for that matter. Ah, like, shucksy kind of roles that he was really, really good at. Mm-hmm. And if you, you, you know, you, uh, right. The whole yeah. Stewart affect is out the window mm-hmm. in this scene. And we'll break it down when we get there. Cause it's yeah. a big point in the film, but this is number one for me. That's a good one. Thank you. I could have picked any number of scenes from today's film. I tried to kind of steer a steer away from that too. But, uh, one we haven't talked about yet is, um, I thought about a couple of scenes too, from shadow of a doubt, mm-hmm. you know, with Joseph cotton, but I got to go with psycho. I'm not going the shower scene. I'm actually gonna, it's kind of split because I like both of these scenes equally. The first is the parlor scene between Norman and Marion Crane. And just the amount of taxidermy birds just kind of looking in. It's just very creepy. And this conversation he has about his mother and his boy's best friend's his mother, you're just kind of already like, man, this something's not, not right about this guy. Amen. And then it just keeps escalating. And that's a pretty long, like maybe 10 minutes. It's a long sequence. It is. And then um, the reveal of Mrs. Bates in the basement, in the, in the, in the fruit cellar. It's just so shocking, and I can't imagine being in the audience in 1960 when Vera Miles turns that corpse around, and then literally the next scene you see Norman come in and drag, and you're just like, what the fuck is happening in this movie? For 1960, that had to have been like panic-inducing, like to just, just to kind of put into a nutshell. But I think Hitchcock handles that content very well. I could have even really gone with, I really like that scene where the detective's breaking down Norman, before the final scene, like, he was a transvestite. Yeah, I I, I love that sequence, sure. but and that and there's kind of a scene like that today, today in Vertigo, but that's my number one. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I always laugh when people see Psycho for the first time, mm-hmm. or maybe not laugh, but find it interesting because the scene you mentioned when he goes in the fruit cellar and Norman appears in the doorway with that knife held and that crazy Joker esque smile on his face, yeah, and that shoddy moo house goddess dress yeah. horrible dress <laughs> yes, it's yes. just short of like an apron and a rolling pin mm-hmm. um it's so uncomfortable to look at mm-hmm. if you play on the idea of greek tragedy and comedy and then if you also go with aristotle back to build up tension then relieve it and that's how you get good story mm-hmm. you get an interesting moment from the crowd in that because i think a lot of times you get a chuckle that's like oh whoa like mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not because it's funny yeah because it's so awkward and, and un- uncanny. Uncanny mm-hmm. is exactly right. Excellent. Well, cheers to all those selections. I'm sure yeah. we're going to be talking about a lot of great sequences here in this cask, but I think it's happy hour time. So let's get to our review breakdown of Vertigo. Vertigo starts out with, you know, a pretty 
iconic and we don't talk about opening credit sequences i think ever on other than like star wars as opening crawl but this opening design by saul bass who also did the iconic uh orange poster this is so um it's so jarring it's so mesmerizing the use of designs and fractals to kind of like it's kind of setting up like what type of film you're you're about to see with these close-ups of the woman's face which a lot of the film boils down to uh, the female form, and in particular, Madeline, and then later Judy, mm-hmm. uh, with kind of perfecting that and shaping it in a way. And we kind of get that here in this this little opening bit with Bernard Herrmann's brilliant score. And I want to talk a little bit about that later in a very uh, crucial moment of this film. What do you think of this opening little bit? The fractals obviously stick out. You go through her eye, and then it goes from the eye of the woman into those fractals, mm-hmm. and they spin them. So you're getting the idea that balance may be off a little bit from the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And it should, even though the movie is a bit tricky in this regard, it should start to solidify that maybe this movie really is about what the title of the film is. Mm -hmm. I find myself really intrigued by film titles, whether it be Juno or the man who shot Liberty Valance. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's named after a character, mm-hmm. it's usually a character study. Sure. Right? Rocky. Yeah. Story about this guy and coming to be what we see him be. Mm-hmm. A movie like Vertigo that's a condition. Yeah. What's this about? What's this movie about? Because the movie, although there are some moments of Vertigo-induced actions that Stewart is engaged in, which we're probably going to get to here in just a minute. Mm-hmm. The movie's not mostly about that, but then at the end, it's been completely about that, hasn't it? Exactly. It kind of shies away from it subtly, but it's the underlying cause of everything, literally everything. And you just said it subtly. Mm -hmm. The fractals that you mentioned that are spinning are subtly spinning you to a dizzy state. Mm -hmm. And as it's done through the character's eye, yeah. As we enter, mm-hmm. like you said, the feminine form, mm-hmm. how you view vertigo and how your ears then equilibrialize it, if mm-hmm. that's even a word, so <laughs> yeah. that you can move. Yeah. And then through what you see from a woman's point of view, mm-hmm. boy, Hitchcock is in full charge of his craft right here. Oh, de- de- definitely. Definitely. So we cut to our, our opening scene here, which is this kind of rooftop chase of some nondescript criminal. And... It comes to a head when when uh, James Stewart, Scott, Scotty Ferguson can't make the jump properly. And he's literally hanging from like the, the rain gutter. Yeah, the rain gutter. Like I always wondered, I was like, how did they get him down? Like, and how long did he have to wait? Because there's no way you're going to pull yourself up like after that. So this cop goes to help him and he falls off, falls to his death. And this is kind of a big crux with Scotty. And immediately in the next scene, this is, and this scene is loaded. Like if you just kind of, and it's long too. It's like another like five, seven minutes. There's some long sequences, but when you watch a Hitchcock film, there's so much happening in those sequences. You got to pay attention or otherwise stuff's going to just like go right over your head. We learned that he's had to retire from the force because of his, these dizzying vertigo spells caused by this incident. It's literally a PTSD moment. Yeah. And he can't, can't go up like several steps and he'll, he'll kind of go back into it again. But we're introduced to another character. This is Barbara Bel Geddes as Midge. Uh, what do we think of her as a character? She's got a lot going on in this film. The other thing we're also introduced to in this, I'm going to get to that also. Yeah. Is he's drinking. Mm-hmm. Scotty Ferguson, Jimmy Stewart drinks this entire film. Yeah. Which I think he's drinking scotch Mm -hmm. to drinking scotch. To drinking scotch. That's right. 
Um, there's definitely an age difference. Oh yeah. He's clearly older than she is. Mm. And what I also find really interesting is what she's busying her time with in this scene is the construction of a new bra Mm -hmm. based on the dynamics of the cantilever bridge. And there's a playful teasing that she sort of flirtily engages him in. And we come to find that the two maybe had a past and maybe dated for a period. And Mm -hmm. then that has evolved into, I guess, a friendship. They were engaged. Oh, engaged. You're right. Yeah. Um, so we've got the vertigo, we've got he drinks, we've got the age, we've got, I guess, a, a soured romance on some level, and then the undercurrent of sex. Mm-hmm. And and uh, as crazy as it sounds, yeah. women's underwear, as much as that's going to play out in this film, because it's going to, especially when we really meet Kim Novak. Well, that's a weird sequence, too, because he like he literally goes like, what is this doohickey thing here? And he's mm-hmm. like, that's a brassiere, Scotty. You should know about all those. He's You're like, a big boy now. He's like, I've never seen one like this before. And he then literally becomes like an expert in like women's wardrobe later in the film, which is... And certainly how to take it off too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And in the, in the, when, when she falls into the water. So this seems very, this seems just very interesting and we're getting like the past there. And then, but then his vertigo test, this scene has always been very fascinating to me with the way Hitchcock told Jimmy Stewart to act it because he gets on like this top stool and he's fine. And then he goes too far and then he literally falls off the stool. But the way he falls off is so feminine and, it's almost like 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 he's the the woman in this relationship is midge like this this the the he's the damsel in distress and she catches him but like the, the way he falls you know what i'm talking about right i do it's very interesting he falls into her arms almost as if there was a reverse fireman's carry that's going along yeah hitchcock is not unfamiliar with that shot if you mm-hmm. go back to the birds mm-hmm. when annie's been killed on the steps outside uh the boarding house mm-hmm. and rod taylor Mitch carries her back into the house. He fireman carries his ex girlfriend Mm -hmm. back into the house. And so Hitchcock is playing at this moment with something that he's explored a bit, which is the domestic roles that go along with that type of posture in carrying someone. And you said it perfectly. When Jimmy Stewart falls, Scotty falls into Midge's arms. He falls in her arms like a crushed little flower and she seems entirely capable of handling him and catches him aptly. And now we're in a weird spot because what role is whose and she's teaching him about what women's underwear is and it's a soured relationship. And this is even going to be further on later in the film when she says, it's okay, Scotty mother's here now. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. What the, yeah, that's bizarre. So, the audience may not know it yet, mm-hmm. but we are already setting up a landscape of bizarre actions that's going to continue through the rest of the movie. Definitely. Have you ever fallen like that softly on anything? Like, no. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so bizarre. Like it is. the way he just, he just kind of just tips, tips over. It's, uh, it's, you got to watch that sequence and just like pay attention to it. It's almost like he catches himself falling because he doesn't want to just eat shit as he falls mm-hmm. until she catches him. And then he just lets it all go. Mm-hmm. So watch that sequence, everybody. It's it's very, very interesting. Very odd. Yeah. So one of the staples of Alfred Hitchcock's films is his cameos. Yeah. So he always kind of found a way to put himself in and we get it right immediately right after the scene as 
uh, Scotty Ferguson retired from the police force um, is answering a call from an old an old friend, Gavin Elster, and he's kind of come to him because he's like requesting his assistance with an assignment of sorts. I've always been really stricken by Gavin Elster's office, like, and we're gonna have to talk about all, all like the clashing of two colors in particular in this film, which is red and green. Red and green. There's a lot of red in this office, whether it's the red leatherback chairs or the carpet. It just really dominates the the, the color palette, and it almost seems like these two car- these two colors are at war with each other in this film. But they, I think, they stand for two very distinct things. And Hitchcock wasn't a stupid man to like not obviously put emphasis on these colors. But here's kind of the the play of of Vertigo and Galvin Elster, what he's asking Jimmy Stewart to do, which is. Need you to follow my wife around? No, it's not like that. Um, she's just gone hours at a time. I don't know what she's doing. She's acting really weird. Um, can you please just kind of follow her and kind of just let me know what she's doing because I'm a, I'm a little concerned at this point. So it's just like a follow mission um, at this point. We do learn that Gavin Elster has also in this like very lucrative ship business by way of his wife. This is his wife's family's thing. Fortune. Mm-hmm. He mentions to Scotty, Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. that his wife will go into these trance-like states. And then as this begins to unfold, we sort of start to realize that he's hiring Jimmy Stewart on first appearance to make sure that his wife doesn't do anything that might be detrimental to her own health. Mm-hmm. And as we move from the pitch, which Scotty sort of denies at first and then later takes on, and with a drink. <laughs> exactly. Right? Drinking again. Mm-hmm. It almost takes on for a period of time, mm-hmm. a bit of a supernatural feel, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The music changes, the camera's a little smoky. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. Like, smoky insofar as it feels a little ghastly, ghostly, spectrally. Yeah, and we definitely get that in the very next sequence, which is Gavin says, well, if I know you're hesitant, but if you want to see, you know, Oh, what she looks like that way you have a better idea come over to ernie's tonight and um we're going to dinner anything like i know where ernie's is so ernie's is the reddest restaurant the reddest that's ever been created like it's like red velvet wallpaper, wallpaper. and like red carpet red. i kind of love it though don't you well it, it and then, but then it makes the juxtaposition of colors here really makes kim novak's entrance as madeline stick out take it beautifully mm-hmm. this is one of my favorite character introductions in all of cinema yes Um, here she is with this kind of this black dress with like this green, like lacy, like shawl. Mm -hmm. And the way she like kind of comes in and just capture Jimmy Stewart's attention is just so transfixing. You, you, you could see why Kim Novak is a beautiful woman in this film. Kim Novak in this scene is introduced in the way that had she walked into room, the fish in the fish tank would have stopped swimming. Exactly. Hitchcock is absolutely telling everyone check this one out yeah she is gorgeous and he's right she is she's a magnificent woman and what helps us out too is his one of his frequent collaborators edith head he'd his costume designer she was always very apt to put especially the the female characters in hitchcock's films in very striking and noticeable clothing where they they really stick out in in, and i think a good way especially you know tippy hedron and the the birds and the birds that's a whole nother connotation there Mm -hmm. But uh, this green really just jumps out at me. To me, green, this color, is just a specter of the past. That's the ghostly element I think you were referring to a little earlier. Well, even to when we get to the forest later on and we're talking about this is where I died. <laughs> and it's just this green redwood forest. Mm-hmm. 
um, yeah, there's tons and tons of color images to, we'll get to it later, the rebirth of Kim Novak and mm. the green hues behind her. It's, it's filled with it. Um, I do want to go have a steak at Ernie's, though. That looks like an awesome place. It does look like an awesome I don't know if that's a real restaurant. It kind of seems like that's like a set, a controlled kind of environment. But I'll tell you what's not controlled in this film is the onset location of San Francisco, which... I think is used masterfully and we got to go back. So this is 1958. Most films, you know, thirties, forties, fifties are primarily done on sound stages. The universal backlots, the paramount Warner brothers backlots. You can go tour these sound stages. Now there's like dozens of them, but they would build the movie in the sound stage. Here's a man Hitchcock. Who's like, I'm actually going to go shoot on the streets of San Francisco. And boy, does it, I think make the, the film look, really good. So San Francisco is an interesting choice because I guess you could classify this movie traditionally as noir. Oh yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So check that. Well, well to not spoil things too quickly, it's essentially boils down to like an insurance, like scam at the end. Wasn't that like all film noir pretty much? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And an affair. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, that I find really interesting and is such a great choice for San Francisco, it seems to fit a film noir location, mm -hmm. but the streets of San Francisco are such vast with hills and valleys that when Jimmy Stewart eventually takes the Elster case and begins following Madeline about mm -hmm. as he's following her in his green sedan, right? Yep. The vertigo that he's already affected by is in full bloom except when he's following her going up and down the hills of San Francisco and the camera makes sure to let everyone see mm -hmm. that's a hill up, this is a valley down. And as he's following her, well, stalking her through the streets of San Francisco. Awesome. So I'm glad you said that because it's so stalker-like. Shockingly, his vertigo's nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. So is this movie really about vertigo? Because it's not now, or maybe it is because it has a lot to do with him and her. Exactly. So strange, but beautifully done. Mm -hmm. I'm so this making this movie shot hate Nashbury pre, you know, Woodstock, Peace Love and Bobby Fisher, hippiness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with those hills and this the have you ever been to San Francisco? I've actually never been, but when I go, I want to walk the Virgo Trail. It really <laughs> is. The streets really are like that. Yeah. Um it's perfect. And it's. I think it's rare for this time. Like films weren't being made like this in 1958. And we're going to see a definite change here coming up in, in cinema. The superior and anterior position of the camera in Stewart's car versus Novak's car as he's following her, usually with, with uh, Stewart's car in the superior position. And the clear admission of dizzying effects of vertigo mm -hmm. is just Hitchcock playing with the audience. Let's talk about another little thing here that I found out in my research that it wasn't an initially intended to be Kim Novak. It was actually going to be Vera Miles again. Really? Yes. And I don't think we've ever mentioned this on the podcast before. We haven't done too many older movies, but we're going to actually hit a few here coming up mm -hmm. with um, actors being under contract with studios. And this was kind of what it boiled down to being the big problem which is, you know, she got pregnant, but while under contract. So he had to go to another contract player um, kind of in, in the line. So you couldn't just pick anybody. They had to be available under Paramount's banner that, oh, we have James Stewart under contract. We have this actor, this actor. That's kind of insane, like, to think about. Now, that's like George Clooney only making Disney movies because Disney has his contract. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. It was a very different time, but... 
these actors could sometimes turn out with that kind of setup, you know, four or five movies a year if they wanted to. Kim Novak's two big roles before this would be Picnic, which is just this overwrought, angsty drama mm-hmm. um, that's interesting enough in that she's the May Queen and there's the virginal element that they play on in that. And then the other one, too, that I really, really like with Kim Novak prior to this is The Man with the Golden Arm. Oh, yeah. Frank Sinatra. Right. Which is a her- Frank- heroin-addicted mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. I guess both of those, eh, maybe not Picnic, let me take that back. I don't think either one of those, even Bell Book and Candle, are a great test for Hitchcock to choose her to be the woman in this noir. Mm-hmm. Now, most people in Hitchcock wouldn't call this a noir either because it was just too tawdry for someone who was as refined and British as he tend to be in his filmmaking. Sure. But it is, clearly. Mm-hmm. But, man, she fits the part. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to this later on. For all of the reasons that Kim Novak, I think, is not a typical Hitchcock woman insofar as she's blonde, but that might be about it. Mm-hmm. And then kind of not really, though. Too. Right. Yeah. You're, exactly. Mm-hmm. She Okay, I'm glad you said that because she, she really isn't. Mm-hmm. She's way too buxom for usually what he likes in his women, and it almost comes across as a little bit sloppy. Now I'm not calling her sloppy. So mm-hmm. please don't misread anyone that I'm, I'm not calling Kim Novak sloppy, yeah. but for him mm-hmm. that much, that much love in a woman versus that much quality in a lady. Mm-hmm. Follow me there. Oh, yeah. Plays really well into the role that she gets in this, which is mm-hmm. seductress. Yeah. And, and it's the age difference that always gets me too. I think, I think she was 24 years old in this film. Have you ever seen picnic? Uh, uh-uh. uh, I have it. Maybe I'll let you borrow it. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's a great watch, but again, you look at that and it's just head scratching to say, was this man so smart that he saw the unrefined goodness of what could have been like a Monroe-esque film fatale in a noir, or did he just get lucky? Because mm-hmm. he, he did get lucky sometimes. Sure. I, I, he's a genius, but everyone yeah. gets a little lucky sometimes. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it works out. Oh, yeah. Boy, it works out. And I thank God that Vera Miles was was pregnant. Yeah. Although she's kind of Kim Novak-esque too, isn't yeah, she? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. And let's talk about James Stewart too, because to, to me he's, this is very interesting because you've always been like a Cary Grant kind of kind of person. Love him, like yeah. He's like your favorite. Yeah. And to me, I think I've always been like a, a James Stewart type of person. Yeah. And talk about, like, I think you could equate these two men literally shaped Hollywood from the 40s to the 50s. Oh, yeah. Maybe we could throw Humphrey Bogart in there, and, you know, I probably would. But these two, whether it's, you know, the the good looks of of Cary Grant, that that, that Clooney-esque, the charisma that he has, and then that boy-next-door charm, (laughs) the wit and the kind of everyman blue-collarness of James Stewart. Um, I found this out. This was fascinating. So he had a very kind of... Uh, Clark Gable, uh, maybe you can throw in there too. Yeah, like sure. A little bit earlier, but yeah, sure. He had a very uh, uh, illustrious uh, military career. He actually fought in so there's like a, a gap in his filmography from like 41 to like 47 because he was fighting in the war, like literally. Like wasn't he a pilot? Like like yeah yeah he was a pilot, and I, I it's it's something he didn't talk about frequently, like in interviews or whatever. It was something he kept pretty close to the chest. But I did find out. Um, as a Hollywood actor, he's the highest ranking actor in military history with the rank of brigadier general. Wow. Yeah. So he was, he was pretty, pretty high up there. I, I believe it was, I believe it was air force that he was in. 
It's awesome. That is awesome. And well, it speaks to then yeah. how smart he is. Mm-hmm. And I think the depiction of the characters that we see from Jimmy Stewart are not is not only uniquely honest. Mm-hmm. There's an honesty in the way he delivers every single line that works for him. Yes. Like rarely do you see a Jimmy, never mm-hmm. do you see a Jimmy Stewart film and say, man, I just wasn't buying him as the guy that saw the rabbit or the townie that wanted to get the hell out of Bedford Falls or go on from like, he's just very honest. And part of that is being smart enough, I think, to mm-hmm. allow himself to be vulnerable in front of the camera. And that's what makes, I think, this choice interesting is because it's very unlike anything he'd ever done like i tried to put an equivalent together this is like if tom hanks was like in like something by like like in seven and he was the bad guy yeah it's like taking that nice guy mentality that you're known for that every man and totally turning it on its head which i'm glad he stumbled into this role because honestly between like this and the man who shot liberty valance i think this is my favorite jimmy stewart character just because it is so different than everything he typically used to do. It's interesting that you mentioned both of those two films mm-hmm. because in both of these films, there are moments where I think Jimmy Stewart's boy next door, honesty, masculinity is compromised in a very feminine way. Mm-hmm. We talked about the fall earlier and Barbara Bulgettis' hands as Midge at the beginning of this film mm-hmm. and the fact that he's in an apron the entire film on the Liberty Valance and we have to do that movie someday That'll too. be a good one. God, I love that film. Mm-hmm. My favorite Western. Yeah. Um, to do like a John Ford cast and do like that one, uh, searchers and like high and uh, not high noon, but uh, stagecoach, sure, why not? That'd be a good one, uh, yeah. So, um, you, I mean, going back to what you said, defining roles and characters in Hollywood, these two guys carved out what is, I think, the comedic form you've talked about Grant and, mm-hmm. and uh, Stewart, mm-hmm. the dashing form, and the boy next door form. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they they figure that out. So let's break down this little kind of following of Madeline that uh, Scotty's doing. He, you know, follows her in the green card to first this flower shop. And we kind of see her pick out this bouquet of flowers. And again, yeah, very stalker-esque. She's like in like, like the back closet, like watching her through like the slit of a door. And then we take that to like this church where she lays the flowers down at, the, at this grave. I did notice something about this sequence because it is very ghostly and paranormal because there's like this like white hue on the camera lens okay so that's what i was trying to get to earlier you saw it too and that's interesting and it was very reminiscent you know we talked about this too with brian de palma it's very reminiscent of the end sequence in carrie when amy irving puts the flowers down oh you're right at the grave it's it's, it was almost identical but we have this grave here of carlotta valdez um who we're going to find out a little bit here coming up because then he goes to, uh, uh, she goes to see his por- or the portrait of her at this uh, art museum. So th- there's some type of like trying to like reference the dead, remember the dead, but then like replicating it even down to the little kind of like updo bun that she has. It's identical to the what she has in the in the portrait. So as we get to the unveiling of Carlotta Valdez's portrait in the Hall of Portraits, wherever the hell that is in mm-hmm. San Francisco. Mm-hmm. What we get is, I guess, a pattern that she follows every day, right? Yes. This is just her general 8 o'clock, I'm here, 9.30, I do this. Uh, He even follows her into an apartment, or I'm sorry, a a hotel, Mm -hmm. the McKittrick Hotel, only to find that she's disappeared. So they really are playing up the spectral piece of Madeline Elster at this time. Definitely. And 
I guess we're supposed to buy off that it's acceptable behavior for Jimmy Stewart because he's the protagonist in the film and it's Jimmy Stewart, but anybody else, and if this is Claude Rains, oh, shit. right? It's yeah. very stalkery. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, but it boils, it boils down to obsession, which I think there's a, a tale of two cities with obsession in this film. This first one is we're just kind of seeing it basically from, you know, Madeline's type of, of perspective. And, you know, she's obsessed with this daily routine and trying to be Carlotta and remember her. And it becomes obsessive and the roles are going to get switched considerably here coming up. But I always kind of find this it's, it, yeah, I'm glad you said stalkerish cause it's definitely what, it, what it is. I don't think people are going to say Jimmy Stewart's a stalker because Jimmy Stewart is not that, but he is now. I know he's been hired, but that's also a bit devious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I need you to follow my wife. I have an idea, Gavin. Why don't you just ask her what exactly in the hell is going on mm-hmm. instead of buying it off when she enters a trance-like state and becomes comatic? I don't know. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, that's also really important is is what Kim Novak is wearing because we're going to get introduced to a gray uh, business suit um, that is quite striking and literally tailored for Kim Novak because it fits like a glove. Mm-hmm. But it also creates an interesting feel with the woman, and this is something that Hitchcock is also quite good at, and that's creating a bit of an icy or untouchable porcelain ice queen goddess effect to her. Mm-hmm. Almost if you lay your hands on her too much, you're going to break her, and you certainly couldn't because you're going to get that beautiful suit do- dirty. This is something that Hitchcock is quite good at. She's not the give her a big hug, roll around, wrestling kind of gal. She is Mm -hmm. refined. And again, going back to what we said earlier, that works really well with Joan Fontaine or um, Ingrid Bergman. Mm -hmm. It's a bit different with Kim Novak because there's just, how do I say this? There's just so many grabbable pieces to Kim Novak. She's so desirable, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that is so, so in this film, intriguing to Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And if... Have you ever taken the images of Novak and Bill Geddes and put them next to each other? Mm-hmm. They're strikingly similar insofar as he, with his unrequited or scorned or soured affair with, with Midge her. Mm-hmm. and the as yet unexplored one with Madeline. Mm-hmm. It's so, so parallel. It's interesting. And then, so it all kind of boils to a head here when she literally throws herself in because we find out Carlotta killed herself this kind of this, this suicidal uh, plot that she had. She throws herself into San Francisco Bay and, you know, Jimmy Stewart has to go in there and rescue her, takes her back to her apartment. And then, yeah, like we talked about earlier, becomes very familiar with the clothing and literally has to undress her because she's like soaking wet. Oh yeah. How I, yeah. gentlemanly. <laughs> yeah. How gentlemanly of him. But uh, when she comes to, this was very striking to me and I was, I was sure to kind of make a note of it because it's going to happen later in the film when she comes out of his, his bedroom and she's kind of wrapped up in this, in this red kind of robe. Well, this is what happens in, in, in the scene. What am I doing here? What happened? Well, you fell into San Francisco Bay. And I, I, uh, Tried to dry your hair as best I could. Your things are in the kitchen. They'll be dry in a few minutes. Come on over by the fire. And she's in this red robe, and he's in this green, like, 
pullover sweater. Now he's obsessed with this visage of the of the past. The past. Yes. It was, it was very striking to me. And I, and I think I picked up on that before, but for whatever reason, last night when I was watching it, I was like, wow, like very clear and, and obvious what we're doing with our, our color choices here. There's a moment when she wakes up in the bed mm-hmm. coming out of her comatic state and sort of snaps to the realization that she's naked. Yeah. And you can see because she sort of looks down at the covers that are covering her, which if I'm not mistaken are also red. Mm-hmm. And then just lets it happen. Mm-hmm. She doesn't argue or say, where are my clothes? Or she just says, you know, and you fished me out. That whole mm-hmm. kind of, I didn't know what I was doing. And thank you for being there. Otherwise, I might have not been around anymore. Yeah. Now we're going to come to a realization later in the film that will explain this, but at this point in the film and what maybe 45 minutes in is mm-hmm. she seems to be kind of crazy, mm-hmm. which is also even stranger and more stalkery for Jimmy Stewart, because if he's chasing this trance like gal and she jumps into the bay and he's been hired by her husband to protect her or follow her is a plus B take her to my house and put her in my bed naked. That mm-hmm. is such a loaded thing to do mm-hmm. right and i'm not trying to be all me too here i'm not saying that but yeah there is an element of his inappropriateness with her well yeah he's been tasked with a job to follow my wife don't fall don't fall in love with my wife and it's kind of what he's starting to do like you see it right you saw it at ernie's in the very first scene with them and he hasn't even called gavin yet he yeah. said hey your wife's naked in my bed yeah i thought that was interesting too like i think he well i don't think he he likes it mm-hmm, jesse mm-hmm he likes it. And then and then immediately immediately after that, you uh, Midge is stalking him outside right. his apartment and sees her leave and he's like, "Well, Scotty." Mhm. So then she goes into this kind of crazy thing. Oh. Like everyone's very mentally ill in this film when you really eventually break it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially Midge. She makes this painting, the Carlotta painting, replicates it, but with her in it. Wow, and that's very bizarre. I'd probably I'd probably walk out of there too if that happened to me. She invites him over and he says, what'd you call me over for? And she said, I hope that you'd take me out for a movie. And she's, but I have something I want to show you first. And mm-hmm. she's taken the portrait that Madeline was staring at in the, the that art museum, the art yeah. museum mm-hmm. right down to the, the necklace. Mm-hmm. And all she's done is replaced Carlotta's face with her own. And I think she thinks it's going to be funny, which it's not. Mm-hmm. But then you get that bit where he, says, oh, Midge, that's not funny, mm-hmm. and leaves. And then in her reflection in the window, mm-hmm. looking out at, at the city of San Francisco, we see her take the paintbrushes that she's used and sort of toss them against the glass and then get to that bit where back to her tied on camera and she starts pulling out her own hair. Mm-hmm. So Midge is off too. Big time. Big time. Yeah. And it's and, and it's interesting too because, you know, we kind of wondering how that's going to play out. And now Scotty and Madeline, he just like kind of like, let's just spend the day together. Because in a very another stalkery scene, he's following her around and she's trying to find his apartment to give him this thank you note. And he's like, well, where's she going? And it, she took him back to his house. Like that's a very interesting kind of turn of events. I think I said his car was green. I think her sedan is green. No, hers is green. Hers is green. Yeah. yeah so that's my mistake. Mm-hmm. And. You know, it's like I just wanted to kind of spend more time with you. So they kind of, kind of go through the through the motions here, and she's taking him through the a little hard to get at first, but then not yeah. too hard to get. Yeah. yeah. Well, they end up in the bed. 
<laughs> not yet. <laughs> not ever. <laughs> um, end up in the in the in the forest, like the John Muir Woods, the this like redwood forest here with this these gigantic sequoia trees. And I've always been again, you talk about the paranormal element that's non-existent but existent in this film. It kind of boils down into this moment too with this big tree with the rings and she goes and says, This is where I lived. This was this where, where I, I was lived. born and this, this is, is where I died. This is where I died. And you're like, what? Um like what are you talking about again? She's really selling it at this point, which at this point in the film, you're like, man, she's delusions of grandeur. She's schizo. She's something. But man, I'm still really into her. But to her, this is just a performance. You know what I mean? Like, like, and and she's later in, in the film, we find out like, man, she sold it really good with all this crazy mumbo jumbo talking bullshit. Well, to that crazy mumbo jumbo talking bullshit that's also set up because we didn't talk about the part where Midge and Scotty go and visit Pop Lebo. Mm-hmm. Pop Lebo is the resident historian of all things San Francisco, shady and otherwise in their annals of history. Mm-hmm. And we get the backstory on Carlotta Valdez. Mm-hmm. We essentially find out that she's a mother that had some bastard children and then went crazy and then lost the children and committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And according to legend, Elster is a descendant of Carlotta Valdez, and this has all been played up. So it's fitting a pattern or a narrative Mm -hmm. that is she's crazy because her family's been crazy and there's a legacy of crazy and it's a haunting of the Valdez name and Gavin Elster just so happened to walk into this and hooked up with this really attractive woman who has a very shaded past. Now, this is all playing out, and when you put the tree rings out in the forest you're talking about said, I born here and I died here. You know, Scotty at this point is like, man, this chick is just haunted on high from herself, her like hopeless. Mm -hmm. But yet, I mean, at some point you and I, or any normal human would be like, okay, it's my best friend. I think Mm -hmm. it's my best friend's wife. He's paid me. She's crazy. There's ghosts. I'm going to go find another gal. Yeah. Nope. Not Scotty. He's, well, I mean, I guess if you're willing to fish someone out of the bay and then leave them in your room naked until you call their husband. And then he literally kind of seals the deal in the next scene. And this this might be one of the it's one of the best kisses in all of cinematic history just because of how dramatic it oh, is. Oh boy, with the music and all. I'm not mad, I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me and she says I must die. Well, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. I'm so afraid. As the waves literally crash like upon the, this backdrop, it's 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 the kind of the ceiling of the deal. Like they're really into each other, as inappropriate as is, as it might be in their given circumstances. So, as much as they're into each other, though, Scotty can't rescue her from the fate that has befallen the Valdez name, mm-hmm. and we're going to get a really important scene yes. in this film that we're going to come back to, and that's the first. I guess it's a cathedral. Oh, that, that's let's get right into it because that's the very that's kind of the very next scene. How about it? Yeah, the the Spanish kind of mission, mission. Uh, on the outskirts of San Francisco that has ties to yeah the, the the Carlotta the Valdez story, 
And, you know, he's trying to kind of get her to like, you know, talk through this. Do you remember anything, this and that? He's trying to kind of like uh, psychoanalyze her at this point or trying to figure out some type of answers. Prove that all the things that she's having these recollections of were actually real things that she's probably seen. He shows her the horse that's in the stable that's like that plastic statue horse or whatever yes, the hell yes, that is. Yes. And he feels like I think if he takes her to the Missions Cathedral and walks her up the stairs, he's essentially going to exercise... Or demons. Good. Yes. Yes, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Here's the crux, though, Jesse. Yeah. All of a sudden, guess what shows up? The vertigo. Oh, yeah. What about that? Yeah. Right? Oh, big, yeah. Vertigo. Big time. So up the stairs she goes, and then he can't traverse them because his vertigo kicks in, and he literally crumbles in that fallen form again. Well, then we mentioned this in the Jaws episode with that great dolly zoom of Roy Scheider. When, oh, yeah. Well, this was the first time it was ever used. Wow. Yeah, they essentially call it the vertigo shot, but... Hmm. Again, talking about the master behind the camera, Hitchcock, you know, trying new things with film. Ca- it, it was back then. It was like it was like a two shot and over the head, staying in the on the set, and like they, they didn't get elaborate with like cinematography back then. You could with lighting, but like not with like how things could pull and move away. Like I think it's a dizzying effect that works really well with that staircase. I mean, it, it's 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 just like this orifice there. Works very well, and yeah, he can't get up to the to the bell tower. From what you just said there, I think maybe we have our flight for next week, mm-hmm. and that's the three most avant-garde or original moments in Hitchcock's filmmaking, whether it be the dolly zoom or <clears throat> any number of things, tragedy, uh, tiptoeing on the lines of homosexuality, or um, like there's so many things. Maybe that's not the flight, but is I don't want to make light of that. It's important mm-hmm. because the effects of that zoom camera remind everyone, oh man, Scotty has vertigo. Mm-hmm. And so up the stairs, Madeline goes. Yeah. In the middle of the stairs, Scotty stays. And he's able, right by the window. Mm-hmm. And then we hear a scream. Yeah. And ah, a body Yeah, falls right down. Right on those like. And it's her and we've realized she's just jumped off the top of this mission and she's now dead. dead. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great shot though, too, right up above, and we see the nuns scattering about below. Oh yeah, that that, and that's kind of like bird's eye view. Bird's eye view, but I try to figure out it's like a matte painting because the mission itself isn't real. It is, it is a painting. Yeah, but then the the actors themselves are real, and like we see him go, and as they find the body, like that's that's good shit. Like for fifty eight, like you weren't seeing that stuff, stuff like that. So here's what's interesting though: like she jumps off, right, Mm -hmm. and he's been d debilitated, not able to move on the staircase. Mm-hmm. And then once she's dead, he just saunters on down the stairs. Yeah. Well, it's a perplexing position for him too. Cause if, if they find him there, they're like, well, what the hell were you doing there? And, and this and that, which he ends up in court. An inquest. Yeah. An inquest. And this is kind of like where they're breaking it all down and they're kind of sending his, his vertigo. They don't say it like that, but like his vertigo came back. He wasn't able to get up the stairs and this and that. And, so he's exonerated. He's traumatized at this point, like literally. Not guilty, yeah. but traumatized. But this works in Elster's favor because this was essentially his whole crazy elaborate plan the entire time. Oh, wait a minute. Time. This wasn't actually real? <laughs> yes. She really wasn't a ghost? Exactly. Wait a minute, Jesse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so poor Scotty um, eventually goes through a, an amazing dream sequence. Good. Right? Yeah, oh, that's good. Where he sees Madeline and, and um, Carlotta Carlotta and images of women and spinning things and his, his, his floating head, his floating head with his little hair. That's <laughs> I love that scene. I yeah. I love that. 
And that culminates with him being put in a mental institution. Yeah. And who's his primary caretaker? Midge. <laughs> Mama's here now, Scotty. What the, f- what? Yeah, Mama? exactly. Yeah. Is she want to use that word? Mm-hmm. Mama? Mm-hmm. If I really What's wasn't like- into you, there's one way to make me sure that I'm not into you, and that's Mama. And here's the other thing, though, too. There, Look, there's clearly <clears throat> a subtle reference to Oedipus here. Mm-hmm. And if you want to really explore that, then the early scene between Annie and Melanie and the birds, which is addressing the Oedipal complex directly mm-hmm. is another fascinating element in, th- in themes for Hitchcock that oh, yeah. we're exploring. Mm-hmm. So she shows up to basically try to snap him out of it and bring him back to like with music therapy. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just, is he in that green cardigan at that point? Is he wearing yeah, a green he sweater yeah. too? And he's catatonic. Like he's just like a zombie. And Midge goes to the doctor and says, I don't think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And so I guess we move forward uh, some months. Well, yeah, yeah. And here's where the film takes such a turn. Is this the halfway point in the film story-wise? I don't even think so. It, it's weird. I think that like her falling out of the tower is the halfway point. This is almost like the beginning of Act 3, but then it does it not really it's either. It's a really long third act then, isn't a it? A very long third act. Because yeah. like the, to me, this is always like the final coda of the film. Yeah. And it's very interesting and I want to say, like, it like takes like this very good turn. It's not a good turn, like by any stretch of the means, because what Jimmy Stewart as Scott Ferguson is about to do is one of the creepiest things I think I've seen in like any film, like like ever. Mm. I've seen some shit, mm. but this kind of like finding of a visage of the past in Madeline up on the street in this woman named Judy Barton that he then kind of follows up to her hotel apartment to really kind of string her along. We're like, I just want to have dinner with you. Like, I like you. Like, how long have you lived here? And you're like, Oh, I'm from Kansas, Salinas, Kansas. I work in fashion and this and that. And again, she's selling it really well, but this is the real Madeline. Madeline is Judy Barton. And we get this kind of flashback of her going up the bell tower and up in the bell towers, Elster, Madeline and Elster's real wife real dead wife yeah as they throw her out the throw her out the window so again it boils down like it's it's this insurance like i want her inheritance solely for the shipyard business right is that his play certainly and here's another very familiar hitchcock trope which is let's give the audience the information and not give it to the people on screen because then it creates tension yeah there's a bomb underneath the table and everyone in the theater can see it except the two people sitting at the table next week we're going to be talking about the ultimate bomb in the room indeed in, in our next film so we know better mm-hmm. that it's all a ploy. Yeah. But nonetheless, Scotty doesn't. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going to have a spectral element too because he's stalking the memory of a woman who never was. So think about that. She literally is a ghost because mm-hmm. Madeline Elster, as portrayed by Judy Barton, mm-hmm. which was false, yes, was never a real character. So from the beginning, he's been chasing a ghost. And now he's chasing the memory of that ghost. So is that like ghost to the second power? <laughs> Ghost squared. So he's a mess. Well, and then then he's obsessed too. Like we oh. saw we saw her obsession in the first half of this film. Now him, it's going to be on full display here, just like putting her through the motions to kind of, we're going to go to Ernie's and we're going to kind of live out this fantasy. Like th- this is fucked up. Like this is like crazy. I do love the, the reemergence of Kim Novak's character in this film because Hitchcock's clever disguise is to give her Wolfman like eyebrows. Yeah. It's literally painted on They're two inches thick. Yeah. And somehow we've taken 
Kim Novak and turned her into the most eyebrow worthy human that's ever walked the face of the earth. And that seems to be enough of a disguise to not let Scotty realize right away, oh, it's the same girl, except something is also leading him to her and maybe it's a familiarity. So the stalker bit that you go through, Mm -hmm. the scene where he follows her up to her apartment and Mm -hmm. knocks on the door and says, I just want to take you to dinner. What's really also interesting in that, and this is going to be another layer of interest in the film, is how easy the cell job is to Judy Barton. Mm -hmm. And it then pauses, it should give one pause, because maybe Judy Barton was suckered into this plot with Elster, because he's just so poorly off. And I think so, too. But I think there was a a genuine connection between these two people, which is why Well, you heard the music when they kissed. Come on, that doesn't just happen. Yeah, I saw those waves crash. (laughs) Uh, so I think she's willing to kind of go along with it, but it's just, it's the path to get there and the dinner at Ernie's, oh, yeah. the, to the department store. Well, let's talk I, about that. Which, to set that up and let's talk about that, the specific, the department store. Bit. Oh yeah. The department store. So yeah, it's eventually kind of boiled down to like, I want to go like buy you these clothes. He's essentially trying to turn her back into Madeline. I'm going to be your sugar daddy. Yeah. And what's the problem with me dressing you like her? Don't you want to look nice? What do you care? Mm -hmm. I'm buying it for you anyway. Mm -hmm. Any, any person in a sane state would say, you're crazy, man. Fuck you. I'm gone. Yeah. Big time. Not her though. Again, it's a pretty, even though there is some resistance, it's really not a tough sell. Mm -hmm. She, she acquiesces pretty simply. And maybe it's 1960s you, so it's different. I doubt it, but maybe it is. Um, She's all too game. Mm -hmm. And the question I always find myself asking when I look at the second half of the film, the reemergence of Novak as Barton is, is she really this dumb? Because she really is pretty dumb. Yeah. And I I don't want to think maybe like kind of go that far, but I think, I think she wants him to find out. Oh really? Yeah. Hmm. Like why? Uh, but just just because like I, it's literally this ploy has been it's it's the most elaborate like scheme like you could really kind of drum up like literally Spanish ghosts of the past picking on this guy with vertigo. Yeah, how did they like they they picked like the like these ten things and like concocted this true story and made it kind of real this like very Inception like <laughs> type of thing with Scotty. Mm. And so she's just so guilt ridden. She wants to clear her conscience. Of I it. think so. And I think that's why she's willing to go that like, like I'll go through the, the, the steps and like, I hope you find your peace, but secretly this is kind of peace for me too. It's weird. I'm in a weird psychological place in the last like 30 minutes of this film. After he asks her out at the apartment, we get the moment where she reveals, if you haven't picked on it to the audience that she is Madeline mm-hmm. and she writes the note and she's going to leave it to him and you found me and, um, the voiced over writing as she writes the letter and then she crumples it up and throws it away. So mm-hmm. she's ready to come clean. Yeah. But I think she, maybe what you just said mm-hmm. is afraid she's going to lose him Yeah, if she gives him the truth. So she decides let's just keep it hidden and I'm going to ride this thing as long as I can. And boy, if the department store scene was uncomfortable. The beauty parlor. Until he takes her to the beauty parlor. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Have at it. Yeah. It's like because now we got to get the we got to get the hair right. We got to get the right type of platinum blonde. We got to get a, get the right updo. We got to get the right shoes. Like all of this has to just kind of fit. What's the line that he tells her? It can't matter that much to you, Judy. Yeah. Or it can completely matter to me, Scotty. Mm-hmm. And she again just sort of says, "Okay." Yeah. And. <laughs> And then it bo- it kind of boils to a head like she eventually comes home and she's in the gray dress but 
Her hair's not exactly. The hair's right. not exactly right. She she literally comes home and is like. Well, I should be back from your face and pinned at the neck. I told her that. I told you that. We tried it. It just didn't seem to suit me. Creepy. Like, it just didn't seem to suit me. Yeah, exactly. But and it's not about suiting her, is it? Mm-mm. It's about but, suiting him. Yeah, it's about him kind of getting this pleasure and this satisfaction. Look, the truth at this point, the relationship between the two of them is abusive. Yeah, well, big time. And that is not familiar territory for Stuart. Yeah. And think, at all. And I think that's what makes it work so well is like he's able to sell it really well. He's able to shed this good-natured mm-hmm. guy-next-door image that he's had his entire filmography to really get really just downright like man like you're you're essentially like you're, you're you're like making over this woman to be someone from your past and be, boy we're about to get like like the the maybe like the quintessential scene of this entire film but something we haven't kind of touched on yet is Bernard Herman's very ethereal ghostly score through this entire film and it's on prime display i think you played it a little bit in the last piece the, yeah the score well, you, that. Yeah, you, you heard a little bit of that but then in the in the creme de la creme moment where madeline or judy now becomes madeline and she lives in this like a uh, hotel that has this like obnoxious green neon outside yeah. outside and as she walks through the door we kind of get this cue As she kind of walks from the past back into the present, this is a great shot because it's almost very, it's very glossy. The green. The Ice Queen revealed. Yeah. Uncanny. And it's And it's ghostly as she comes through that green, but I think very, very much explicated by Bernard Herrmann's like just brilliant music at, the, at this point. And Scotty's thrilled because he's resurrected the ghost of the woman that never was. He has Madeline back. This and is, this poor, is great for him. Poor Judy is also not around anymore either Mm -hmm. because she's now had to become Madeline. And she's even changed the pantameter of her voice Mm -hmm. to meet the Madeline voice versus the way Judy normally speaks. And there's a difference between the two of them. Mm -hmm. So she's done up and we go to another very dramatic kiss. And as they're kissing, the room spins to images of the past, present, and ultimately future because they do show the Spanish mission again Mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. And they're just sort of circling and there's this dizzying moment where... We realize that from Stewart's point of view, he's completely lost in the affect of the spectral woman that never was. and He just can't find a way out. Mm-hmm. So Gavin Elster's plot, which like you said, was an insurance policy scam mm-hmm. to get the family business, the shipping business, business yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't trade routes. No, that was Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Taxation and trade routes. Yeah. Yeah. But... There's some collateral damage, and that's any shred of Jimmy Stewart, Scotty mm-hmm. Ferguson's sanity. The man is completely gone. Mm-hmm. But he's happy in this moment. Well, at least he's happy. Yeah, crazy happy guy. <laughs> crazy, crazy happy abusive crazy guy. Crazy happy psycho man. Mm-hmm. They're gonna go to they're gonna go to dinner. He's like happy. He's really joyful. I think this is like the first, Ernie's. Yeah, the the first joy we've seen in him since before her death, since the kiss on the cliffs. And what does she do though? Yeah, she goes into like the jewelry box and she's kind of putting on the earrings and then she puts on this necklace. Can you help me put on the necklace? And he looks at it and he's just like, Oh, don't you like me? You fucking bitch. Like, because she puts on the necklace. Yeah, the which car- is red. The Carlotta necklace. So, what's been told to us earlier was that like this whole scheme was so elaborate that they literally had to go and Elster went and bought, I imagine, 
the Carlotta Valdez jewelry collection at Sotheby's auction or whatever. Like some scene not told to us. This is how elaborate the plan is. They're wearing the jewelry of this woman who uh, killed herself. We don't have a lot of rhyme or reason why this is the straw that breaks the camel's back, but this mm-hmm. is what snaps Stuart. Ferguson. Why would Judy put that on? Have it, that it, necklace. Right. Exactly. It wasn't that she's exactly the same woman mm-hmm. or any of the other clearly 50 clues that maybe tell you you are stuck in the middle of some scam. Mm-hmm. Nope. It's this necklace. And again, interesting, the color's red because as much as the green was the past, I think red is not only the future, but the angry future in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all set against the backdrop of we're going to go to dinner at Ernie's, the red restaurant. But um, first, there's one thing I want to show you, something from the past, and we're clear of it, yeah. or that whole bit. Yeah, one thing, yeah, and then, yeah, we'll kind of be able to move on. We're going back up to the mission. So we see Stuart, well, like, Stuart snaps on screen, though. We see him come to the realization, like, oh, my gosh, I've been had. And then... You know, she goes into the, I'm going to have one of those big steaks, and she's talking about the night that they're going to share together at Ernie's, and you can already see his mind is gone. Mm-hmm. He's already putting the pieces together. And they get in the car, and off we go back to the Spanish mission. This is a great sequence, too, sure because, is. yeah, we're back up, the, you know, the staircase, and it's at this point. So this he, is my scene that we talked about in the flight. He's fully figured it out at this point. This the scheme, uh, Judy's role in it. Um, that was never Elster's wife. That was really you. Like, how much did he pay you? What did he give you? He's literally dragging her up the stairs. Yeah, she's refusing to go, and he has her kind of cinched around the waist with his arm, and he's dragging her. Her feet are clicking on the stairs. He's dragging her up the stairs. I always like that. I always like that line. You were very apt pupil. You were very, very apt, apt pupil. pupil. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A good student. You were good. You were a good study here to sell this the way you did so the the plot comes clean or the plot comes to fruition Mm -hmm. and she admits that he's absolutely right that's what it was and that it doesn't matter they can still be together and i'm different and all of those things and he gets her to the top of the bell tower well almost to the top but right before they get into the belfry which we'll, we'll get right into he looks down and we see it from his perspective we don't do the vertigo dolly zoom this time and he kind of just looks down and he's just like and I made it. I made it. Like he's he's at this, he's conquered like whatever kind of PTSD or ever kind of hangup he's had from the entire past of all his vertigo hangups. This situation has been so jarring for him and the realization and the backstabbing and all this Shakespearean type of thing that's been happening to him, it's gone. He's the Scotty that we saw for like 15 seconds at the beginning of the movie again. Well, this is significant because we then realize, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. this movie was actually about vertigo. Yeah. And if you miss the I've made it and the clarity then that he is now cured, we're going to reinforce that in just about two minutes, aren't but we? But there's another like throwaway line earlier in the film where he says, like, if you like address your like fear head on, you can like vanquish it. It's like Nightmare on Elm Street, just turn your back on Freddy. It's funny that you would put it that way, mm-hmm. like throwaway line, because again, it goes back to the the questions and, and the philosophy and the theory that goes around the title of the film. Cause it is a throwaway line. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've seen this movie a hundred times. Yeah. I think it's when they go to the mission the first time. Oh, I think you're right. Yes. It might not be. <laughs> I just remember. No, like, there's something like that there. You're right. Mm-hmm. But again, it doesn't matter because even though this movie is titled vertigo, it's not what the movie's about until it needs to be what the movie's about. And it's absolutely brilliant in that regard. Mm-hmm. So you want to get it to the top? Yeah. You go for it. Top of the Belfry. 
and all sins are revealed only to have a nun appear out of nowhere that looks very Grim Reaper-like, which then scares Madeline. That's her room. That's where her, her bed is. <laughs> and she falls off the bell tower. Just flies out the window, yeah. To her death. It's quite frightening. Like, like when you see this figure kind of rise, you're like, ah. well, we've been kind of ghostly and paranormal up until here. And you're like, ah, shit, maybe. Yep. No, it's just some nun. Heaven have mercy. And then she starts ringing the bell. And what does Scotty do is just kind of looks at her from the precipice of this bell tower. Stands over the ledge. With no problems. No problems. Yeah. And we fade out on that. And you're with, oh, yeah, it was about vertigo. Mm-hmm. Love that ending. I it's I think it might be my favorite Hitchcock ending. So last night I watched it and on, on the Blu-ray, there's actually so in Europe and you know, everyone's got weird censorship rules all over the world. They wouldn't let this film fly unless there was like a tacked on production code ending to kind of like did the bad guys get away? So there's this ridiculous ending back at Midge's apartment. She's listening to the radio and they're talking about Gavin Elster, who's gone to like Switzerland and the authorities are gonna extradite him back to the US, just so we know. He's going to pay for his crimes at the end of the day, which at the, who cares at this point? Yeah. Scotty comes back and she makes him a drink and they look like eloquently off and out the window. It's such a really, so they're kind of alluding to them actually being a couple. Now. Yeah. It's such a bullshit ending though. Like, like that's, it, it feels, it feels tacked on. Sure. The true ending is this. And I, I think it's, it's masterful. Like Hitchcock, I think has in, you know, film criticism has taken a lot of flack for the way he ends films. Fair. Which is fair. Um, I don't think that's a, a, a gripe here in this. I think he literally, it was, it's like a mic drop ending. Yeah. Boom, out the window, none, ring the bell, conquered vertigo, logo, the end. <laughs> like, I think you, you, you get out when you're, when you're supposed to. I think all loose ends are tied. Yeah. The movie was about vertigo. We've come to a conclusion there. The story of Madeline and Scotty has come to a conclusion. Clearly, Midge is not in the picture anymore. And how could she possibly be? And is that really what she wanted from this film? And no. to the other stuff, no one no one cares about Gavin or her anyway. So that ending was very, very appropriate. And the tacked on bit that you said is simply just tacked on nonsense. I think you'll like this little element too in my research. So this is this is actually kind of based on a book called De Entre les Morts. It's a French title, which means from among the dead. It was written by Pierre Ballou. Not Dumarier. No. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you're gonna love this. Okay. So Pierre Ballou also wrote the story Le Diabolique. No shit. By Clouseau. How about that? Pierre Ballou all was also one of the screenwriters on Eyes Without a Face. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, thank you. Yeah. Merry Christmas to me. Merry Christmas to you. So Vertigo has ties to Eyes Without a Face in this type of kind of the writing that this 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 man does. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because like I wonder if there's an adapted English version. Yeah, I look into that. There could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hitchcock's interesting too because I'm I'm pretty sure for the most part in his entire career he I don't think he ever wrote any of his films. Mm-hmm. They were either adapted from books or just screenplays that he would then direct, which is fascinating to to me because. You know, that allows him to just be in total control of just how it looks and how it's presented on the screen Mm -hmm. and then just kind of taking those stories and kind of that's where you kind of kind of get like a lot of films, like especially De Palma, like to me, Blowout's the film that like Hitchcock uh, like never made. Like it's so him. Yeah. Like that type of like uh, that type of story Mm -hmm. like that, like just like ekes him. Do you imagine the arduous process then that he would have had to go through to decide what was going to be his next Hitchcock film? Yeah. If he's not adapt, if he's not 
specking his own material or doesn't have a stable of writers that kind of carry out his ideas. He is just combing through vast amounts of material looking for what's the next thing that feels like me. Well, it's it's interesting too because then you you end up going from something like Rear Window, which I think is like one of one of his classic films, and then you go to like the man who knew too much or like to catch a thief and you're just like, eh, yeah, yeah, I, I could kind of see, yeah, there's some missteps there. Sure. So they, and it could rely within story. Especially the latter third of Hitchcock's career, which this would be in. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it starts with the bang because you literally have this followed up with psycho and then following that up with birds. And then you do Marnie, Marnie. and you're like, yikes. And then, <laughs> you know, Mar- Marnie's okay, but like, man, that's the, that, that's an odd film in, in and of itself. Sexual thriller is t- tough in 1964 yeah, or six or whatever. I agree. But then you're following that up with like torn curtain and family plot and topaz and then frenzy. And like, you're just like, yeah, it's getting a little like not great. Yeah. And he's getting older too. Yeah. As, as, as a director. Yeah. So I think time now more than ever, let's go ahead and rate vertigo. We have rock gut, well call single barrel and top shelf. Why don't you go ahead and go first, Matt? Top shelf. One of the 10 greatest films of all time. Uh, There's times in my life when I've said, this is the best movie that's ever been made. Uh, Again, his most critically acclaimed film is Rebecca. We'll get to that later on the cast, right? Mm-hmm. But this movie is an absolute masterpiece. There's not a rough scene in it for me. Um, it's infinitely rewatchable. It holds up over the years, and I can tell that from like what I think about it to what my students currently think about it. If you're willing to sit down and do a little bit of work in a film, which I'm not afraid to do, yeah. this movie leaves nothing to be desired. If you want... Popcorn, eye candy, Michael Bay, Transformers. This is not yeah, your movie. Get, get out. <laughs> this is a film, mm-hmm. and it's smart, and you can watch it a hundred different ways for a hundred different things, and it delivers on all of them. It's a masterpiece. I like what you said. It's smart, and that's what I like about Hitchcock. Hitchcock's films, to me, are very smart films, Yeah, most of them. Um, but they don't beat you over the head with it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you could watch like a really arty film and be like, yeah, it's trying to be eloquent about all this A, B, C, D, E, and F. Hitchcock's doing the same thing, but you don't like even know it when you're watching it. Like until you're like, wait a minute, like why did Jimmy Stewart fall out of the fall out of the of the the stool that way? Like, yeah, that's interesting. The interesting thing also about this film is the reception it got when it first came out. It was not well received. Oh yeah, it was kind people of people hated it. it. It was it wasn't a bomb, but it like it wasn't a big hit for a guy whose name was you know North by Northwest, mm-hmm. and we could go on with like the vast you know number of hits. People. I think at that time left this movie a little bit ingenue neophyte when it came to what or when it came when it comes to what Hitchcock's smart films were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they wanted something that was a little bit more palatable and not so much work. Sure, and maybe also again not of that time. Mm-hmm. I bet people were not comfortable with Stewart in that role. Oh, definitely couldn't have been right. Yeah, this I, this is one of my favorite things of watching films and observing cinema as a medium is the reappraisal of films. Mm -hmm. Something that doesn't quite connect with a 1958 audience that when you kind of go back and you, you watch it in the nineties or the two thousands and you're like, yeah, you know what? That's, this is like kind of like subtly like an amazing masterpiece is what it is. And I like when films can fall into that trap. Um, Nothing's more disappointing. Like, yeah, you can come out and make a shit ton of money and people love you, but then they forget about you. Yeah. Um, we're not forgetting about Vertigo. There's, I think there's another reason for that reappraisal too. So I found out in, in my research after Hitchcock's death, um, 
you know, I think the last time this film was re-released, I remember there wasn't VHS or like Blu-ray. You had to see it in the theater. They stopped re-releasing Vertigo in like the mid sixties. And then he died in 80. And I don't think it was re-released until like the late eighties again. So there was a period where people hadn't seen Vertigo for almost maybe 20 years. Mm. So some time had definitely passed. So it was time to reappraise the film in a new light. So there's some film lists that this is number one. Like AFI has this, the greatest film that's ever been made, like past Citizen Kane, like greatest ever. Yeah. I'll echo the kind of same sentiments as the top shelf home run. Like, yeah. I think a couple of weeks ago, I think I said Empire Strikes Back was the best film we reviewed on the podcast. It's like it had a three week window. This is by far yeah. the best film we've reviewed on the podcast. It's I, I always want to say this will go down like Psycho is the film Hitchcock will always be synonymous with. When you say Psycho, you'll remember Hitchcock in the shower. You get it. This is his true masterpiece. Like, I don't think he's ever been clicking, you know, on more cylinders than he was in this film and in just so many different ways. And I love Jimmy Stewart's performance. I love Kim Novak's performance. Barbara Bell Geddes is really good too. Yeah. For for what the character she's trying to play. Mm -hmm. Like to me, this is the my favorite Hitchcock film. It's I think it's his best film. And I mean you like to play the tiered game. There's like there's like the 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 A team, the B team, and the C team of like directors, filmographies. Man, this is like A team, and he's like the the like the starting point guard, point guard. captain. Like, yeah, this is like the LeBron James of like Hitchcock's career for like just to kind of give you that kind of metaphor. Sure, and there's a few more in there, and there, there's Hitchcock has a lot of B team, like a ton, like like as much as I like Suspicion and Notorious, like I, I have to put him in that second tier. Yeah. Like they they, they they it's just different, but um. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So let's kind of wrap up this episode with the nightcap. And Hitchcock is kind of notorious for working with people more than once, whether that be Jimmy Stewart, I think, uh, four or five times, Cary Grant, uh, yeah, third, three or four times. And, um, you know, the women, Ingrid Bergman and Grace uh, Grace Kelly, Tippi Hedren, uh, all these different actresses. So whether it be actress someone behind the scenes, who do you think has been Hitchcock's greatest collaborator? Greatest collaborator, Cary Grant. Um, so I'm going to go with the talent, not the technical piece. Okay. Sure. So Cary Grant's first two of four films with Hitchcock were suspicion and notorious. And my choice is going to be this from notorious. Now he's going to come back out of retirement for Hitchcock. Mm hmm for um north by northwest and um oh robbie what the hell to catch that? a thief catch a thief thank mm -hmm. you now that's also a very important moment because north by northwest is the movie that starts the conversation about Cary grant as james bond sure mm -hmm. and he turns it down because he just says i don't think i can do the physical the physical work that needs to be done for that movie well, what was he at that point like you know, like mid 50s like <laughs> yeah pushing 60 yeah. shows every moment of in the train car with even marie saint too mm -hmm. doesn't he mm -hmm. well, which the, also works the train car sequence <laughs> there's a moment in notorious which is where i'm getting to for the support on this answer where he's upstairs with ingrid bergman she's been poisoned by our boy claude rains <laughs> The Nazi Claude Rains. I forgot he was in that movie. How could you? Yep. It's not Clive Owen. Yep. And they are so close and so masterfully shot together. And in this very, very tense moment where she's ready to die literally any moment, the expertise that he gives 
the actor's talents to carry through what he wants them to be is monumental. There's so much space on the screen and such a tight camera shot to appreciate the beauty and the talent of those two that you see that this man not only was really good at picking story most of the time, but the directorial element of showcasing the talent you chose quite an art Mm -hmm. because sometimes you get so heavy handed with your directorial uh, beliefs that you quell or squash the talent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's lots of stories about Hitchcock telling essentially, you know, how am I supposed to kiss this guy? And he basically tells her it's Cary Grant, figure it the hell out. You know, there's like a tippy headron or something, even though they weren't a movie, there's some story about, yeah. um, Or it's Jim, it's Sean Connor. I don't remember, but he basically put tippy headron on, on point saying like, it's just kiss him. What are you talking about? Mm Mm-hmm. So he could be heavy handed too. Big time. And a bit lecherous. Yeah. But in that moment, man, he is so artfully delivering like the B list, like the bench on the all the all time basketball team. It's that's a bench player, right? Notorious. Yeah. But that <laughs> notorious is a bench, right? <laughs> that's not even the sixth man. That's like seventh. That's like your backup post. God, what movie's the fucking water boy? Is it like Mr. and Mrs. Smith or like foreign correspondent? I'd like, say foreign correspondent. It's one of those. Yeah. Maybe spellbound. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Ingrid Bergman though might save that and sure keep it up. Anyway, so we get into that. That's funny. Um <laughs> if you've never seen Notorious, I'm not gonna tell you it's an amazing film. It's a pretty good film and you, there's some very, very, very terrific Hitchcock tropes in there, the MacGuffin and some things we'll get into in the later podcasts. Mm-hmm. But the Grant and Bergman and the bed rescue scene is just superb. It's mm-hmm. everything that that man could do right. And especially when he found the guy. Mm-hmm. The two guys are Stuart. And Grant. And Grant, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they present two different characters in his pantheon of films. Although they're both boy next doorish. Mm-hmm. Cary Grant was the spy. Jimmy Stewart was the beat cop. Mm-hmm. There's a more grounded sense to them and a yeah, more regal yeah. sense to one of the other ones. And if he had just done those two guys in every one of his films, I wouldn't have had a miss because, you know, I like Rod Taylor on the birds, but shouldn't that have been Jimmy Stewart? Oh, that'd have been great. Right. I don't know why I didn't take it, mm-hmm. but anyway, we could go on. It's it's, the, it's the, Cary Grant. The only step outside of that bounds that I think it works just brilliantly is like Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. Okay, fair. Because he's just so that's so out of left field. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever? Yeah, I don't disagree. Isn't nor isn't Anthony Perkins mm-hmm. the B minus version of Cary Grant? Yeah, a right. Bit. They like like look the same body. Look, mm-hmm. there's this no way Cary Grant was taken. This nor- younger version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good choice. Cary uh, Grant and uh, Ingrid Bergman, they're, they're a good combo, actually. I think that they work really well together. Yeah, talk about different collaborators. And, you know, something interesting about Hitchcock is, you know, because he was such an affluent director, like, he, if he wanted the big actors and he was at the studio that had it, he could get them. Yeah. It, to me, it's like the equivalent of, like, a Tarantino or, like, a Nolan. Like, the, these big names will go work with that director. Paul Newman later in his career, uh, Sean Connery and Marnie, uh, Gregory mm-hmm. Peck, like Joseph Cotton, like talk about a year Joseph Cotton. Sir Lawrence Olivier. Talk about a year Joseph Cotton had like 42, 41. He did Citizen Kane and like Shadow of a Dell. It's like a pretty good year for Joseph Cotton, who just like then vanished after that until like touched uh, Niagara. Uh, no, uh, 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 the third man. Mm-hmm. But um, my collaborator, I'm going technical. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a music man. I got to pick Bernard Herman. And he, he only really truly scored five of his films, uh, Trouble with Harry, 
Marnie, Psycho, North by Northwest, Vertigo, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Okay, so six. Uh, and was a sound consultant on the birds, whatever job that was. But like his his the, his strings, like I, I equate that more with Hitchcock than a lot of his other elements in the in the films. I mean, whether it's Psycho and the dun 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 dun, and then like the music here, and then especially North by Northwest, dun 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 dun. dun, dun. Like it's it's very sp- it's, that score is very Bond like before there ever was Bond. Well said. Um. Yeah, he's interesting, and I actually found out the crux of the breakup. I think it came on Torn Curtain, and he had Bernard Herrmann do a score, and he did this kind of like really like jazz loungy type of music, and Hitchcock was like, no, fuck that music. Mm. Ended the partnership. Like, they would not work with each other ever again Mm. after that. So that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Jumping off point for Herrmann because the rest of that – career for hitchcock after that is it's probably that was probably a wise move might have been like i'm not gonna no i'm out sure yeah i've always really liked his music and you know i'm I'm, I'm a big fan of film scores and man he's one of he's one of the the big players you know if we're going to talk about like him and like max steiner and john williams and maurice jarre and like you know some of them like he's like definitely he's top five Mm mm-hmm He's on the starting lineup he is. of like film composers. So I think that was a very fr- uh, a close second is Edith Head, Edith Heed, this costume designer, because I think the way the Hitchcock's films look is from the costumes. And that's something we never talk about on the podcast. Like it's like story, maybe the visuals, some camera work. We've never, I think, talked about like costumes, but there's a purpose to them, especially in his films. Like you have to pay attention to what characters are wearing because it's actually important. It says a lot about who they are without saying a damn word. Right. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. So this has been a fun episode. I was excited to talk about Vertigo because I've always really, really enjoyed this film. Um, But uh, film two in this cask of The Master of Suspense, part one, we could do five parts to this cask. I mean, like Notorious, even for like what you mentioned, is still worth talking about. Sure. Trouble with Harry, Lifeboat, Shadow of a Doubt. Man, that might be a very interesting episode between the two of us. Uh, North by Northwest, Marnie, Birds. Like we could just, 39 Steps, Lady Vanishes. Saboteur, The Lodger. Blackmail. Yeah, we could like. Blackmail. We could just do like a whole year of Hitchcock. That'd be crazy. Yeah. But. uh, I'm doing any of those. Yeah. Film two coming up next week. Talk about playing with the medium yet again. We have, I think, 1946 or 48, Rope, mm-hmm. with our boy Jimmy Stewart yet again. But we're going to have a couple new players. One very interesting, Mr. Farley Granger. Yes. <laughs> uh, Strangers on a Train. We didn't even bring up Strangers on a Train in anything. Like, that's a fascinating film to me right. as well. Yeah. Uh, but this is interesting because it's a film primarily shot in camera with, like, maybe three or four cuts. Yep. It's all in sequence, so it's very play-like, and we mentioned that kind of um, bomb under the table element. This is that in a nutshell. Boy, like, isn't it? From the opening scene, literally. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Rope. The first time I saw Rope, I actually fell asleep. I, th- I was like 18, and it was late, and I fell asleep, but then came back to it, and I was like, yeah, this movie's, this movie's got a lot going on to it. So this is going to be a fun conversation, because I, I don't think I've watched it. It's been at least 10 years. What version of it do you have? Do you have a Blu-ray or what do you have? Yeah, I have a Blu-ray of it, yeah. I know we're going to do a Rye Watch in week three. Do you want to do a Rye Watch in week two or you want to do that on our own? Or the Rebecca one. We'll save it for that one. Okay, that so we're on our own. That one's going to be good. Yeah, uh, Rope was a movie that I was introduced to with Gus mm-hmm. at UNM. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a, a nod to him also. It's 
masterfully done and there's plenty to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, not only from philosophy of man, there's a lot of theory on man in this to me, mm-hmm. but uh, again, with Jimmy Stewart, expertly done um, to, like you said, Farley Granger. Mm-hmm. If people haven't seen this film, I don't necessarily say you have to watch it before we do it. I don't think there's a huge reveal in this because the real reveal in this film is essentially given away in the first 30 minutes, uh, first 30 seconds. Yeah, literally. Two it's minutes, like maybe. The second shot of the movie. Um, this is a a very technical film, and I think that's where we're going to spend a lot of, as you said, using the camera as a medium to portray a story exactly the way I want, mostly in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of high noonish in that regard. Oh, yeah. Very high noonish, yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, cheers, Matt. Do we want to uh, cue them in on what maybe we have coming midweek too? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so we'll be, you know, closing out 2020, you know, starting this brand new decade and whatever film has in store for us. So we're going to do a midweek flight question to rank our top 10 films of the decade. So this is 2010 to 2019. And I think you threw a little kind of wrench in there too. You you also want to kind of list the three worst films. Yeah. Oh, but that'll be interesting. So yeah, we got that. We're going to have that coming midweek. So you'll have a extra dose of ride this week. So yeah, you have that coming to you. So until then, till then, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. I got to get going. I'm going to go stand on my stool. See if, um, see if I have vertigo or not. I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. <laughs> um, if you fall, I'll catch you. Mid style. I'll, I'll be sure to fall in a very, uh, kind of way. <laughs> Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Vertigo is property of Paramount Pictures, Alfred J. Hitchcock Productions, and Universal Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Judy, with all of his wife's money and all that freedom and that power, and he ditched you, what a shame. And he knew it was safe, he knew you couldn't talk. Did he give you anything? Some money. And the necklace, Carlotta's necklace. There was where you made your mistake, Judy. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been... You shouldn't have been that sentimental.